scripture reading this morning comes to us from 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has testified to his Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Chancel Choir. It's good to have part of our choir back in person and uh, really, really makes a difference. And thanks to Becky Hoffner Camp for her continuing to lead us in music while David Kenrade is recovering from knee surgery. I think he's doing well, but be a little bit before he's back with us. Keep David in your prayers and all those who are, are recovering and going through tough times. The actual last day of the Easter season is next Sunday, the day of Pentecost. But today I want to wrap up my series, Epistle Lesson Series from 1 John. And you've probably wearied of hearing me say this, but just one more time, one more quick time. 1 John was apparently written to a congregation that had split over theological and doctrinal differences. There's some debate as to whether 1 John is a letter or a sermon or a religious tract. 1 John contains some of the most moving and eloquent passages in scripture or anywhere else for that matter about the love of God. Now today's passage has been labeled by some scholars as testimony concerning the Son of God. Testimony is defined in the following ways. Let me lay out just a few of these. A, it's a solemn declaration made by a witness under oath. B, evidence based on observation or knowledge. And C, an outward sign. A witness is described like this. A, one that gives evidence, one who testifies. B, one who presents a, at a, one who is present at a transaction so as to be able to testify as to what happened, what they saw, what they heard. And C, one who has personal knowledge or experience of something. Or D, something serving as evidence or proof, something entered into evidence. In the Old Testament, the law was quite clear as to what constitutes a witness. A single witness shall not prevail against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he or she has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall the charge be sustained. And there are parts of the Old Testament certainly that have influenced our criminal justice system. But I don't know about that part, how that works. I think folks can be convicted now on the testimony of one witness. But the Old Testament was pretty clear. Unless two or three folks saw what happened, 
then the charge could not be sustained. The idea of witness is an integral part of of John's thought. In the Gospel of John, we find different witnesses all converging on Jesus the Christ, lifting Jesus up, pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus. John 1, 32, and John the Baptist testified, I saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus And I myself have seen and have testified that he is the Son of God. Jesus' own deeds are a witness to Jesus. John 5, 36, but I have a testimony greater than John's, Jesus said. The work that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing testify on my behalf. That the Father has sent me. The scriptures are, of course, we believe, a witness to who Jesus is, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that testify on my behalf. And then the father who sent Jesus is a witness to Jesus, John 5, 37, and the father himself who sent me has testified on my behalf. The writer of John's gospel goes on to use a phrase that is a favorite in in the gospel. He speaks of the person who believes in the Son of God. There is a wide difference, and we'll say more about this in a moment, in believing something, believing a person, and believing in a person. If we believe a person, then we accept their statement, what they say, what they do, and at the moment it sounds like it may be true. But if we believe in a person, then we accept the whole person. And there's an element of trust there, and it elevates this whole thing about what's true and what's not. We would be prepared not only to trust his or her spoken word, but also to trust ourselves to their care. And there's a different level there. To believe in Jesus Christ is not to simply accept what he says as the truth. It is to commit ourselves into his hands for right now and for all eternity. Verses 9 and 10 of today's passage refer to three kinds of testimony. And we're going to talk about those for just a minute. There's the testimony of mortals, of human beings, the testimony of God, and the testimony that those who believe in the Son of God have within themselves. The testimony of mortals may be taken to mean the continuing witness and tradition of the historical church expressed through its preaching and its doctrines and its rituals and through the unique influence of the church in the world across all of these years. We too are heirs of this original testimony, but we are heirs also of Christian testimony in all generations, including our own. Don't all of us who claim to follow Christ owe our beginnings in the faith in one way or another to the testimony of someone who has influenced us and spoken to us and cared for us and loved us. But we too are a part of this same testimony and we have a part to play in making it known by our words and by our deeds. The spirit of the gospel must find expression through us for we cannot keep from speaking, the word says, based on what we've seen and what we've heard from Acts 4.20. We testify to other things in our life that have meaning for us, family and work and children and, and grandchildren and hobbies and music and travel. We talk about those things that have meaning in our life that shape who we are. 
Why should we hesitate to speak words of witness of the one who is ultimate meaning? The one who shapes our life not only in this world but for all of eternity. Why are we so hesitant sometimes to speak clearly of Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel? Some folks say, and you've heard folks say, I'll let my actions speak for me. Others will know I'm a Christian by the way I live my life. I've heard that. I believe that in some way. I want to ask though, will they? Aren't there good and decent and kind and caring people in this world who are not Christians? So actions do speak louder than words, but that doesn't mean that words are unnecessary. We need our words to explain our actions. If we are living a Christ-like life, people need to know that. And they know it when we talk about the reason for caring for other people, for being a blessing. Aren't we persons of faith today because someone or some group of someones like a local church loved us and cared cared for us enough to tell that old, old story of Jesus and his love? It's good sometimes to stop and think about where we first heard the story, who the folk were who made that story clear in our lives. And how we're doing that now for others. The testimony of others. And then there's the testimony of God. The testimony of God is the witness God has borne through the preparation in the Old Testament of the coming of his own son. The coming of Christ. Supernatural signs and wonders and powers accompanying Jesus' birth. God's testimony to what's going on. Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection, all of those things, Jesus' continuing presence in the world are part of our history. This testimony is greater because it bears the authority and the sanction of the entire Christian revelation across the years. Verse 11 in our text says, and this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. One scholar writes, this testimony is external and objective as compared to the internal and subjective testimony in our own lives. Our testimonies are going to be subject to some extent to our life circumstances, our financial health, our physical health, our family situation, our church affiliation, the work that we do. It's difficult for us to be completely objective about anything because of the subjective realities of our life. And the testimony of God is also prior. It comes first and it elicits or draws out the testimony of human beings. Men and women do not impute, do not give to Jesus Christ their own confession of faith as revealed and their own opinions and then find God verifies them. Rather, their confession of Christ is the truth, the only truth that is acknowledged. And it comes first and it is revealed to us. And maybe it's an oversimplification, but it helps me to understand all of that by saying this. God acts and we react. God is always the first actor. That happens in in baptism. And and that's, we won't go down that road right now, but why we feel like we baptize infants and little ones because God is the actor. And then we react throughout our lives. And if God's the primary actor in baptism, God gets it right the first time and we don't redo that sacrament. External evidence cannot be a substitute for 
internal experience. We need both. Objective evidence needs to be complemented with subjective evidence in our own hearts and in our own lives. Why we believe like we do, why it's important. Faith does not err when it appeals to personal experience, though there are risks in doing that, and we've got to be careful about what kind of experiences we we blame on our faith. But the author of 1 John knows these risks well. And this whole document of 1 John is a critique of false religious experiences and a warning about folk who would lead us down the wrong paths. John does not hesitate to make the case for Jesus' divine meaning and for the validity of the gospel based on inward experience and inward testimony. Verse 10, those who believe in the Son of God have this testimony in their hearts. It's real. It's something inside of us. The inward assurance is brought about by faith. Logic and reason do not suffice to bring people to the truth of the incarnation. There's got to be more than that. The word became flesh and lived among us. We need to know that in our hearts. Someone said years ago that there are some truths in the realm of faith that you cannot understand until you believe them. Sometimes we want to do it the other way, don't we? We want to work it all out, get all of our T's crossed, all of our I's and little J's dotted, everything explained, and then we believe. And some things we just don't know until we believe and then we live into that belief. And we study our way in and we pray our way in. Those who believe have this testimony in their hearts. But belief is not in a doctrine but in a person. Folks who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And such belief is, we believe, instigated by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' own presence, bringing the believer to experience inwardly the truth by which we then confess with our lips and with our hearts. The testimony of God and the claim of Christ to be the Son of God are self-evidencing and self-authenticating. We're going to sing that closing hymn in just a little bit. And I'm persuaded. I know whom I've believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able. We know. We know that the hard knowledge is a real thing. In the Wesley Study Bible, the footnotes from time to time have blocked off little sections called Wesleyan core terms. And one of those sections entitled Assurance was prompted by a verse from today's lesson. 1 John 5, 11, and, and this is what it says, Wesley's thoughts, Wesley's footnotes. The scripture is one message is that God gave us eternal life and that this is life in God's son. Wesley believed that before a child's first cry splits the air, this message washes over them wordlessly. The spirit moves day after day to awaken in us our native or to take away the delusion of our native godlessness, to lead us to the foot of the cross, and to know that we abide in Jesus the Christ in that place. When by the Spirit we yield, we are grafted into Jesus' body, the Spirit tells us silently, inwardly, that we are children of God. And that matters more than anything. This yes stirs God's child to respond in love in a myriad of loving works. The witness of the Spirit comes. And it's been a priority over the lifetime, the Spirit's reply, our reply. And every moment of gift and gratitude, however ambiguously, the Spirit assures us that we are God's children. And we go through turmoil and we go through strife individually and in our families and sometimes in our church families. And we need that reminder, that living word, strong reminder, we are the children of God. The Spirit assures us. 
Just as when we breathe, we know we are alive. And when the Spirit of God breathes and lives in us, we know that we are alive in him and he in us. On the United Methodist version of the church calendar, May the 24th is a significant day. Some of you will know it's Aldersgate Day, a week from tomorrow, I believe. May 24, 1738, John Wesley's heartwarming experience. And if I've done my math right, about 283 years ago when John Wesley's heart was warmed and, and his life was changed, Aldersgate Street, a place in London, but also when we say Aldersgate, we think of an experience that changes our life. And the wonderful example we have in John Wesley of the three kinds of testimony that we've been talking about this morning. And let me tell that short story again with very long implications. Most of you have heard it. If you've been around Methodism or United Methodism for any length of time, you know this story, part of our story. Wesley said, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society on Alders, in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface of the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the human heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away sins, even my sins, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had in a more a special manner despitefully used me and persecuted me. I then openly testified to all these what I now first felt in my heart. In a whole tradition, a church was birthed out of that experience. The testimony of others, the testimony of God, our own testimony. If we were on trial for being a Christian, would it be a wise thing or a foolish thing to testify in our own defense? Would our testimony acquit us or convict us? Amen.